1: Hi guys, Sam Willis here. Now, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new competition we're running to win a signed copy of one of our series books. We've got books on World War Two, the Romans, the Tudors and the Vikings. We know there are many, many thousands of you out there listening to our podcasts and we want you to tell us on social media what you're doing and where you are whilst listening. We want to see all the beautiful places or ordinary jobs or wacky things you're doing whilst listening. Either send a photo or just describe where you are and what you're doing and we'll draw a random winner. But remember, to qualify for the competition, you have to tag us in your post and add our web page, historiesoftheunexpected.com, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. But if you do let your followers know that you're listening to us and enjoying it, we'll enter you into our competition for a signed book. Thanks everyone and good luck. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history. Like bees tennis and radiators.
2: And we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew? Who knew that the history of sharing is in fact all about Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto? Or that the history of presents, yes, gifts, is in fact all about the feudal system in Norman England? I also... I think we should do the history of rats, partly because I saw an enormous rat scurrying across our garden yesterday and have the rat man in to sort it out. I think we need to do something with that. Not too obvious, like the bubonic plague. That's far too obvious for us. Something something slightly more challenging, maybe like the history of childhood. You see where I'm Ooh, going wow. with that? Pipe yes, Piper I I and the yeah, rats of nice. Hamelin. Excellent. Which could nice. also be about broken promises. Well, maybe that's too esoteric.
1: (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the man sitting opposite me, who's clearly quite excited today with lots of (laughs) ideas, who will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor James Daybell. Hi, James.
2: Hello, Sam. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Excellent. And the man sitting opposite me, or actually not sitting opposite me because he's across town during lockdown, is the world-famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello,
1: Sam. Hello, hello everyone. This is yet another episode in our special series Homeschooling History, which we're both enjoying hugely. I hope you are too. And the idea is, in each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history, and we not only prove that it does, but we demonstrate how important it is to know about it. And today's a super fun one. We are doing the history of dressing up. Which, of course, is all about the Rebecca Riots and Turnpike Roads. But before we
2: reveal that connection. Sam, are you dressed up specially for this?
1: (laughs) I'm I'm not, but I'm now regretting it. And I really feel like I should have been dressed up. And if I was going to dress up, I would have put on one of the splendid Tudor hats we have from our Tudor history live show we've been doing in theatres.
2: Well, I am indeed dressed up. I am in full uh, Highwayman regalia, uh, (laughs) especially for this episode. Now, where should we start with this? We should brainstorm other examples of dressing up throughout history. And it makes me think of Count Leo Tolstoy, the man who wrote all sorts of wonderful masterpieces, such as War and Peace, Anna Anna Karenina. Um, In 1881, he set off across his vast tracts of land, disguised as a peasant, in order to see how ordinary
1: people lived. That's... Fascinating. I didn't know that. Um, but it's made me realise uh, there are other famous examples of that, aren't there? Absolutely. Of, um, mm, mm, not least, not least, uh, Alfred in the Cakes. Mm. Is that one?
2: Definitely. I think that's definitely one.
1: That's definitely he, the, one. The King of England who is on the run, isn't he? He's on the run and he disguises himself. I was thinking about dressing up in terms of military Uniform, Really interesting about why people dressed up as they did. And if you think about it from just a a completely blank slate, a starting point, and you maybe imagine what someone like Nelson would have worn with a strange hat worn sideways, or, and then later on in the Navy, a strange, long, pointy hat worn forwards and backwards, and the different uniforms they wore, um, why that changed over time, why it was introduced. And you can look at the specifics of wearing a uniform at any one time, Nelson very famously was shot on the um, on his deck of. HMS victory at the Battle of Trafalgar and he was wearing his uniform and many people said that made him conspicuous that he was easy to spot by snipers and actually that he may have been vain and his vanity is what caused him to die. We don't believe that anymore but it's one of those fascinating debates linked with dressing up linked with uniform. Yes you can
2: also think about dressing up in terms of disguise. You could think about carnival in Venice where every year still people dress up in elaborate costumes and elaborate masks. And that's all about the social world turned upside down. It's about hiding your identity of who you are in everyday life and being able to act in a way that is completely different from that. Think also about the tradition of the Lord of Misrule. I Sam and I both live in Devon and this custom still goes on today in Devon and Cornwall where each year people will dress up, you'll have a Lord of Misrule who is somebody who's very ordinary in the town or the village and you set him up as somebody in authority and it allows you to play with social hierarchies. But you can also think about it in terms of people dressing up in order to disguise themselves when they are up to no good. Take, for example, January 1629. And this was the Molden Grain Riots. We're in the midst of poor harvests, depression. The English cloth trade has slumped and people are starving. There are high food prices in Essex. And what happens is a group of people go and they storm some ships that are carrying grain. Now, this grain riot was led by one Captain Ann Carter. This was a man who was dressing up as a woman in order to storm this ship and come away with all the grain to feed the starving family. Now, The reason that they were dressing up as a woman instead of a man is because men could have been punished for this crime. But women were seen to be largely accountable for by their husbands for these kinds of actions. So if a woman did it, she could get away with it. So there we are. Mm. There's dressing up as a woman in order to commit a crime and get away with it.
1: I love it. The, um, what you mentioned about Venice is interesting. I was at the carnival there um, a couple of years ago making a film and I had a, a really weird conversation with a human swan. <laughs> this, this lovely girl was dressed up as a swan and she was doing very, very well indeed, being given lots and lots of tips. But it's fascinating. If you think about who was in charge of Venice um, in the 17th, 18th century, there was a guy called the Doge and he was a bit like a king. And very famously, he had a a type of uniform he would have to wear, um, which was very different to monarchs around Europe. And he wore a lot of silk of a particular type called damask. And that was done to demonstrate the links between Venice and the Silk Road and their ability as merchants to get and transport silk, which had come across from China. Through Central Asia. But regardless of all of these fascinating histories of dressing up, James, I think we should do an entire episode on it. Today we're going to talk specifically about dressing up in relation to something called the Rebecca Riots, which happened in rural parts of Wales between 1839 and 1843. So we've got two different things here one is riots, and the other is people dressing up. And it's a really, really interesting period of time. And these riots were were caused by, primarily by um, men who were wanting to cause public trouble. And they were forced into this behaviour by, by a number of things. The first was by high tolls which were put on things called turnpike roads which James is going to talk about later. This is a new road system all over the country and it cost money to travel on the roads. They were also tenant farmers and they'd been losing a lot of their money because landlords had been putting up the rent. Wales at the time had also been undergoing a huge population increase since the 1750s, all to do with the Industrial Revolution and the changing nature of English and Welsh society at the time. And because there were more people in Wales, it meant that there was higher unemployment and more poverty. So you've got to think of these rioters as absolutely desperate. Another problem which was affecting their money was tithes. They legally had to give 10% of everything they created as farmers to the church. Now that might seem very unfair, full stop, but you've also got to bear in mind that they had to give it to the Anglican church. And at the time, a lot of people who lived in Wales, as much as 80%, didn't see themselves as being part of the Anglican church. They were what we call nonconformists. And there are also social problems wrapped up in all of this. So those wealthy landlords who were leasing out the farms—they were very high up in the social order. They tended to speak English. They had money. They had positions of responsibility. A lot of these people were magistrates. They um, so they were linked with the law. They were also linked with turnpike trusts, who was the that was the infrastructure that were dealt with the turnpikes. And then at the same time, you've got these people who are actually the farmers. They are speaking Welsh. They're poor. They're from rural backgrounds. They're working with their hands in the fields. And they're very cross with these different social status. So this leads us all up to the Rebecca riots. And I want to read a little transcript of a statement by a guy called William Rees, who is a toll collector. And he's a toll collector of the Trevorne Turnpike Gate, and he's made this statement on the 15th of August in 1843.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over one million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer.
1: That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. That between one and two o'clock on Sunday morning last, he was disturbed by a man knocking at his door who inquired the way to Klan Bridge. Which he told him, and that immediately afterwards he heard the sound of horses, when about twenty-five or thirty men, disguised, having white frocks on and their heads tied on with coloured handkerchiefs under their chins, came to his house and compelled him by threats, pointing at the same time three guns at his breast to deliver up his books, which they carried off. The books contained, among other accounts, the names of several persons who would refuse to pay toll at the said gate. He is unable to identify any of them, but the person nearest to his house window rode a grey horse. So there we have the account of William Rees, toll collector of Trevorn Turnpike Trust, and he's describing how 25 or 30 men came to him in disguise, wearing white frocks, their heads tied up with handkerchiefs, and how they took away his books, pointed guns at him. It was clearly very violent, very frightening, and in those books were names of people who had refused to pay the toll. One of the things you need to know about the Rebecca Riots is why they were called the Rebecca Riots, um, which I absolutely love. Here, it says that they were called the Rebecca Riots because they named themselves Rebecca and her daughters, which is most likely to be after a passage in the Bible where Rebecca talks of the need to possess the gates of those who hate them. And so they're linking their riots to passages in the Bible, which tells us a little bit about how those people in Wales and rural parts of Wales have recently been educated in the Bible. They're knowing their Bible stories really well and also how they see themselves as being confronted with these people who speak English, those people who are wealthy, the differences of those who are much higher up the social ladder and they see, they see them as those who they hate. And James is now going to explain a little bit about these turnpike roads and why they were causing so much trouble.
2: Absolutely. But before we do that, I want to talk about the period before the turnpike system, because by the late 1600s, British roads were in an appalling state. They hadn't had any major investment in them since Roman times. There's a little bit during the Tudor period, but very little after that. And this meant But the roads just really weren't fit for purpose and to illustrate this take for example two of Britain's most important cities London the capital of England and Edinburgh the capital of Scotland and the distance between these two important cities is about 420 miles but if you travelled from London to Edinburgh in around 1750 it would have taken you A week going by boat, and get this, two weeks going by road. A whole two weeks. And by 1900, this journey would take you nine hours. So what we're talking about is how this improvement is possible. How does this come around? Because in 1750, Britain's roads were in an appalling state, but they were now busier than ever. Because if you think about what's happening industrially, coal is being mined and needs to be taken to factories and then to towns to heat people's homes. Cotton as well needs to be moved from ports to factories before the finished goods could be moved to market. There's also a need for a fast, reliable postal service, which is absolutely key for business. Uh, Many people use the sea or rivers to get around, especially when moving heavy goods like coal or like iron. But the problem with using that is that many, many dozens of towns are in fact miles from the nearest river. So you need to seek an alternative, which is the road. And here we face a host of problems. Uh, Firstly... Britain's roads were very lonely and isolated places. They were unlit at night. And what this means is that as soon as travellers leave the safety of the towns, they're sitting targets for highwaymen. And there's a real problem about stand and deliver and needing to hand over your valuables when highwaymen come and stick you up in your stagecoaches. Also, The roads themselves were pretty dangerous places. They were full of potholes and very, very hard to traverse. Now, I'll give you a couple of examples of sources here. This is an account written by one Arthur Young, a traveller. Let me warn all travellers to avoid roads like the devil. They will meet here with ruts which actually measure four feet deep floating in mud in the summer. What can it be like in winter? I passed three carts broken down in 18 miles. And here is a late 17th century excerpt from a book by a woman called Celia Fiennes, and she describes trying to descend into the town of Foy in Cornwall. A deep clay road it was, which by the rain the night before had made it very dirty "'and full of water in many places. "'In the road there were many holes and sloughs "'wherever there is clay ground, "'and when by the rain they are filled with water, "'it is difficult to shun danger. "'Here my horse was quite down in one of these holes "'full of water, but by the good hand of God's providence, "'which has always been with me, "'ever a present help in time of need, "'I'm giving him a good strap.' "'He flounced up again.' Though he had gotten quite down his head and all, yet did he retrieve his feet and got clear off the place with me on his back. So what she's describing here is basically her horse stuck in an enormous hole full of water on a road. Now, this was the problem for the road system during this period. A, the roads were pretty useless and in a shocking, terrible state. And B, there was trouble from highwaymen. And in this context, the government wanted to help businesses. And what they did was they set up this system of turnpike roads. They divided Britain's main roads up and rented each section to what was known as a turnpike trust. This was a group of businessmen who were responsible for improving a stretch of road and keeping it in good order. And for doing that, they could charge a toll to anyone who travelled along that section. And that toll would be collected by somebody called a tollkeeper. Now, Turnpike Roads, as they are known, had gates at each end of the stretch of road where the tollkeepers collected money. And much of the cash collected was used to improve the roads. And there were a series of specialist engineers who went on to create some of the finest roads Britain had ever seen. At the beginning of the turnpike system, the quality of roads wasn't actually that good. It was very uneven. But by the 19th century, you've got a series of individuals who are very good at producing roads. Thomas Telford, for one, and John McAdam, for the other. And I think Sam is going to tell us about John McAdam,
1: I am. I'm fascinated by John McAdam. I think he's a really, really interesting person. He's Scottish. He was born in 1756, so the middle of the 18th century, when the world really was a fundamentally different place. Remember, we're talking about the riots around 1839, 1843. So that's really a significantly long time after uh, John McAdam was born. Now, as a young man, he spent some time in New York City and he made an absolute fortune over there. This is before the American states uh, won their independence from England. He then comes back to Scotland and he becomes a road trustee for his local district. And he decides at his own expense, he spends some of his own fortune at conducting a series of experiments in road making. Later on in 1798 he moves to Falmouth in Cornwall where he carries on conducting his experiments and he ends up recommending a certain type of roads that roads should be raised above the adjacent ground to allow them to drain and that they should be made first with large rocks then on top of that a layer of smaller stones and that is to be bound together with fine gravel. And to document all of this work, he writes a book. It's called Remarks on the Present System of Road Making, and it's absolutely fantastic. I've been reading this in my in my time preparing for this podcast, and I'm going to read out just a couple of excerpts from this book. Here he starts off in the introduction. The present very defective state of the turnpike roads and highways in the United Kingdom and the continual and apparently unlimited increase of the toll duties are the considerations which have given rise to the publication of the following remarks. The modes of making and repairing roads are so various in the different parts of the kingdom that it would be an endless task to attempt a particular account of each. It may, however, be possible to give a general idea of them according to the materials produced in each part of the country. I love this. He then describes how the roads are different all over the country. And this was one of the major problems. In the neighbourhood of London, the roads are formed of gravel. In Essex and Sussex, they are formed of flint. In Wiltshire, Somerset and Gloucester, limestone is principally used. In the north of England and in Scotland, Winston is the principal material. And in Shropshire and Staffordshire, large pebbles mixed with sand. And he adds, interestingly, excellent roads may be made with any of these materials. So what's lacking is a system whereby it can all be made by the same system, something reliable, something dependable, and this was a management task as much as it was one of inventing. He then concludes, the formation of roads is defective in most parts of the country, in particular the roads around London are made high in the middle in the form of a roof by which means a carriage goes upon a dangerous slope unless kept on the very centre of the road. He then goes on to explain how those roads are repaired, but it's an absolutely fascinating document. And he was the man who def- described and invented a new system of roads, which allowed um, all sorts of transport to happen on the roads much more quickly than ever before. It was a key moment in the transport revolution. Now, I think it's time for a bit of a quiz to see if you guys have been listening. Here we go. I will start. How were the men disguised in the attack on the Traveorn Turnpike Gate in August 1843? Number two, how long did it take to get from London
2: to Edinburgh by road in 1750? What
1: did John McAdam invent? What is a turnpike trust? Number five, why were the rioters called Rebecca and her children? And last but
2: not least, describe two problems that passengers faced On Britain's roads. And have we got a task for them, James? We certainly have a task for them, yes indeed. Now, what we want you to do is to write an account of how turnpikes improved Britain's roads. That's the first part. So, write an account of how turnpikes improved Britain's roads, but also talk about the problems that were related to the turnpike roads. Now, you may need to re-listen to this podcast in order to be able to answer
1: this. So there we have the Rebecca riots and how they fitted into the very important history of the Turnpike Roads. And just to put this into context, what happens next is absolutely crucial to the way the Industrial Revolution changed everything in England because after the roads, we then have canals and people wanting to ship material in larger bulk, much more than they ever could on the road. So canals come and then after the canals come the railways and with the railways, absolutely everything changes. So guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com and do come and find us on social media. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. We'd love to hear from every single one of you to hear how you're getting on in lockdown.